New Thinking Allowed. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the language of the soul. My guest is Dr. Betty Kovacs, who is a specialist in comparative literature and the theory of symbolic and mythic language. She has served for many years as chair and program chair on the board of directors of the Jung Society of Claremont, California, and sits on the academic advisory board of the Forever Family Foundation. Dr. Kovacs is author of Merchants of Light, the Consciousness that is Changing the World, which was the winner of the Nautilus Silver Book Award, as well as the Scientific and Medical Network 2019 Book Prize. She has also written The Miracle of Death, There is Nothing but Life. And now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Betty. It's a great pleasure to be with you once again. Thank you, Jeff. I'm glad to be here. The language of the soul is is such a wonderful, rich topic. I thought it might be nice to begin by uh, talking about a term that I found used repeatedly throughout your book, Mundus Imaginalis. Yes, that is the world of the imagination, but it's not imagination in the sense that the Western world has used it. It really is the world of archetypes, of symbols. And, you know, the ancients understood this so much better than we do because they saw the world in three spheres. The top sphere was pure spirit, pure intellect no forms at all, completely formless, but it was perpetually, or it is perpetually, coming into being in the world of the archetypes, the subtle world, the mundus imaginalis. And then, that is the second world, the third sphere is the world of matter, and of course of all living things that we know. And it is then the ability that we have evolved into having to be able then to perpetually uh, work with, co-create with this world of the archetype, the Mundus Imaginalis. And we have actually, as uh, uh, Henry Corbin, who worked with the Sufis, said, we have the organ that is necessary to communicate with this subtle world with the world of archetypes, and that is the organ of soul. So it's these three spheres are constantly uh, uh, interpenetrating and and co-creating. And I gather that according to the Sufis and other ancient people, and even according to depth psychologists today, this world, uh, the Mundus Imaginalis, is just as real as the physical world, maybe even more real. It It is, yes, uh, the sphere of pure being, the essence, pure intellect that has no form, as I said, is constantly coming into being in the Mundus Imaginalis. And the ancient Hebrews in the first temple call this day one, day of creation. So this is where our roots are, our source of being. Uh, the spirit is ground of being, and it is constantly manifesting in archetypal form in the subtle world. So uh, it, it is real because when the physical world is no longer, everything that has happened in the physical world is encoded and recorded in the subtle world. Now, the Sufis knew that, and our ancestors who were shaman mystics knew that, but we have lost that knowledge. Yes, and you are so right. It is real. It is the source. Our roots are in that world, and even quantum physicists today say that everything that appears in matter has its roots in a non-spatial, non-timely world, and that would be the subtle world. Would you say, Betty, that the Mundus Imaginalis is also the realm of dreams? 
Oh, yes, it is. The realm of dreams and visions and uh, intuition <laughs> that uh, is communicated to us through uh, the symbol or through feeling, through that organ of soul, which is the heart. And I suppose also when esoteric traditions talk about the astral plane, that's probably also part of the mundus imaginalis. Yes, I think it is. Uh, the Sufis knew how to use their organ of soul to really co-create with the universe through the subtle world, through the archetypes, and they are called the cartographers of that world because they traveled it, experienced it, and understood it very well. So there are many dimensions. Well, even Jesus says, in my Father's house, there are many mansions. And I think he was speaking of that subtle world. I guess it would be fair to say that long before we ever develop written languages or uh, philosophy or even, even stories and, and literature, people had access to, to this world through their dreams. Absolutely, yes. Uh, I uh, use in my book Jean-Baptiste Vico, who was really the first one, major, first major theorist. And he understood, he was in the 1700s, he understood very well that the right brain, although he didn't call it that, he called, sim called it simply pre-reflective consciousness, developed before reflective conceptual consciousness. So, the right brain or the pre-reflective consciousness language is symbolic language. And he said, there's no way that can lie. <laughs> that can't deceive us. It simply is what it is. And we now know that the right brain, the symbols feed into the left brain and actually give it its consciousness. Uh, and Vico also said that the right brain I'm calling it that because we do today, pre-reflective consciousness or symbolic consciousness is uh, not irrational as the West has thought it to be. We thought that simply because we had no understanding of it. It has a poetic logic, and it is this logic that gives birth to conceptual logic in the left brain. So yes, people during the time of before we had really differentiated conceptual thinking, yes, they had access uh, to, through dreams and visions. And we now know that this must have been nature's intention all along is to develop a consciousness in time and space that had the ability to communicate with and co-create with the subtle world, with the universe, so to speak. So these people had, uh, early people would have had um, profound experiences symbolically. It wasn't until much later that we could even separate what was symbolic and what was conceptual. And we can understand the difference between the two, but we must never let one replace the other. Well, if we look at the very earliest vestiges of human culture, we come across cave paintings, we come across ancient burial sites. Uh, these would be the, the first indications of how this Mundus Imaginalis, the symbolic language, began to translate itself into human activity and culture. Yes, yes. And we, uh, the earliest that we know of or that we have discovered, we'd have to say, uh, would be the cave cultures. And how magnificent, how beautiful those paintings are. And we know that there were rituals within those uh, caves. And here is this, the the rock was not seen as just a surface to paint on. It was seen as that membrane between the world of symbols and the human world. And they were allowing those beautiful animals to come into time and space. And it's really uh, work symbolically because that is what happens when we work with a symbolic mind is that we bring it through the, the membrane, we might say, between the subtle world and the physical world. We bring it into existence and we co-create with it. So yes, they must have had profound experiences in the caves. I gather the caves were used as, as part of a shamanic culture. And, and in fact, you write about the idea that uh, the early hunters 
went into the caves in order to prepare themselves for the hunt. That's why there are so many depictions of, of animals. And for these earliest of hunters, the hunt itself was a very, I suppose, our language is is shallow compared to to what it must have been for them, but I'll say spiritual. Yes, uh, there was a great respect for the animal world. They saw the animal as more highly evolved than themselves, but they they saw them as spiritual beings, and they honored them and respected them. But then there was the practical need for food, and so it was a great problem for them how do they how do they resolve this tension between respecting the animal not wanting to take its life away but also confronting the needs of their community so they were initiated i think as hunters in the caves and there were so many other types of rituals also but uh, i mentioned in the book that there are two basic myths of of that time and always in the shamanic mystic worlds, there's a myth of having to survive on a daily basis, the practical needs of survival. And then there is the myth of meaning of how we see and experience and honor and respect the universe. And that is the larger myth. As long as that myth can contain our need and our efforts to survive, we're okay. But if survival becomes separated from any meaning, then we're in deep trouble as we are today in the Western world. So yes, the hunter had to really experience uh, being in that world and honoring the animal and honoring all of life and asking if they could take this life, but always with with respect and honor. And they felt that they got permission from the animals and that the animals would continue to give them permission as long as they respected all life. And that, that was a beautiful thing. I found that when I was in Siberia, there was an anthropologist uh, in Novosibirsk, I believe it was, and he talked about being a hunter. Uh, in the great forest in Russia and working with shamans. And he said, oh, that works even to today. Uh, we give them our respect and we ask them for their bodies to eat and they will let us know exactly where they will be. And we go there and that's where they, we are able to take their lives. I always thought that was so interesting, but um, he says that still. Oh, yes. He said, it, we, we talk with them. They work with us. And as long as we respect them, then we can continue to do that. That's a fascinating story because anthropologists went through uh, quite a long phase of disparaging the insights of primitive cultures. Oh, it's been the history of Western world to disparage anything that came before us, in a sense. As a matter of fact, uh, anthropologists, archaeologists did not think that these caves were used for shamanic rituals. Uh, and it wasn't until uh, David Lewis Williams and Jean-Claude wrote a book on the shamanic history of the caves that gradually uh, other anthropologists and archaeologists came to accept it. But I was horrified to read that the summer that their book was published and they went to the caves to work with other uh, archaeologists, that there was, they wouldn't even mention it. They didn't even mention that book. And then later they kind of laughed about it. Uh, it was just, they felt that nothing could be said about the meaning of the caves. There was no way to know what was going on. But I was very grateful for these two uh, writers who uh, did a beautiful job, I think, in, in convincing <laughs> others that, of course, this is what it was these caves were for. Even then, I gather from your book that they had a, a, a what can I say, a very strong Western mindset. Even Michael Winkleman, who was uh, known to the parapsychology community, talks about these visionary experiences as existing purely within the physical brain, as if there's no real grasp of the mundus imaginalis. Be working with that material and his material was frustrating. Uh, and also with David Lewis Williams. Here he saw that it was shamanic, but he in a way almost laughs at it himself by saying, 
well, they believed this, but of course now we know otherwise. And for him too, it was just a matter of being in the brain. And so they, they missed the point <laughs> and very frustrating. They, they understood a great deal, but they did not have any concept of mundus imaginalis. Far outside the brain. <laughs> Henri Corbin, the philosopher who, who wrote a book by that title, Mundus Imaginalis, made a point of uh, distinguishing between what he called the imaginary, which is sort of a, a, a term of disparagement, and the imaginal. Yes. Yes, he did. And that's always been our problem. And even now when people begin to try to exercise their organ of soul to uh to relate to the subtle world, to allow these archetypes and images and symbols to be clearer to them, there's always that, oh, did I make it up? <laughs> you know, I think that's a process that people often go through because we've lived in a culture that, that that's always made up, you know, and it's, yeah, it's, uh, the mundus imaginalis is that world that is receiving perpetually the energy of pure spirit. And as it hits that world, it shapes itself into archetypes. And then we are, I think, nature's intention to create a consciousness in time and space that could communicate with that archetypal world. And of course, we want to be careful and not make things up. But when we're really in tune with it, we know, as uh, uh, Andrew Newberg, uh, who has written about the brain, says that those experiences are not just in the brain, because feeling is another way of knowing. You feel so deeply the reality that you feel that it's realer than real, and you know that it is. I was influenced in my undergraduate years by reading a, a book by uh, the Freudian psychoanalyst Eric Fromm, who I think the book was called The Forgotten Language, in which uh, he's referring to dream interpretation, basically. And it seemed as if the Freudians started this process and the Jungians took it much further in, in terms of understanding dreams. And uh, as a result of that, I, I find that that uh, I'm very good at interpreting other people's dreams. But somehow, Betty, when it comes to interpreting my own dreams, I seem to <laughs> feel a, a block. I, I suspect that that's not so uncommon. Probably not. And that's why uh, two things. It's very good to write the dreams down. I found that in writing the dream down, I remembered more of it, and my brain began to make connections between one event and the other, or one symbol and the other. And it's also so good to talk with someone about it, uh, thus the therapist, I guess. But uh, I love how uh, Goethe, the German poet, said that, you know, when we share these images, we share these symbols with someone else, it's like putting a mirror uh, to the sun. It in intensifies the energy of that symbol and its activity in, in our own lives, because the symbol can relate to us on many levels, on the feeling level, on the conceptual level, on the, all of the senses, and it uh, can communicate to the heart in, through intuition. We, seem, we know things intuitively, but we don't have the logical uh, chain of reasoning to get to that. But uh, it's uh, when, when this happens, then, uh, with other people or in writing it, it does intensify. And as it intensifies, we understand it better. So it is good to talk with someone about it. You reference Goethe, and as as I recall, he had a very intriguing insight that uh, because he was a poet and a, a novelist and, and a playwright, that the archetypal patterns that he saw in poetry and literature, he felt were also akin to the archetypal patterns underlying all of nature. He did. And he was a part of that uh, ancient shaman mystic scientist uh, group that had to be undergrounded. It went underground when the church would not allow any of their activity uh, 
to participate in culture. So uh, I, I love the story about Goethe going to the university to study law because that's what he was supposed to do. And he just was not happy with it. And he came home and his mother realized that he was looking for something more. And so she had a friend who was a pietist. Well, this woman was really an alchemist because pietism was still in Germany since the renaissance of the Rosicrucian uh, symbolic, shamanic, scientist uh, renaissance. And so he worked with her. So Goethe really became an alchemist and he understood how these symbols, these archetypes uh, influence every aspect of our lives and also ignite our evolution. So he was... He was a poet, and he was an alchemist, a, a very uh, uh, high order, I would say. Betty, also, I recently did an interview about a man named Neville Goddard, who was one of the major 20th century speakers in the New Thought tradition. And his major insight was that God is in the imagination, that our imagination, in fact, is the divine within us. And that seems very consistent with your notion of symbolic language and the language of the soul. It's an interesting way of putting it, and I would agree. I think the divine is everything, <laughs> and it's in every every aspect of the physical world, and certainly it manifests archetypally in the subtle world, and then it is pure spirit, pure being, pure essence uh, in uh, the spirit world. So I think it's, it's that divine beingness is everywhere, and we have evolved to a potential of communicating with that divinity in ourselves and in the universe uh, in a way that perhaps other creatures don't, although I think there's divinity in all and consciousness in all. But I think uh, it seemed to me that nature intended, there was an intention, a consciousness, of course, in nature that wanted to develop in time and space a consciousness that could co-create with it consciously. And I think we are that species. And uh, the sadness of Western culture and the pathology of Western culture is that we decided that there was nothing but the rational mind, especially during the 17th century with the Enlightenment philosophers, uh, that everything that came before was inferior, useless, get rid of it, which meant the symbolic brain. <laughs> and it's only conceptual thinking. And that has cut us off from the right brain the symbolic flow of these uh, this energy into the left brain. It has cut us off from the mundus imaginalis. There wasn't even such a place. And so the organ of soul that could communicate with the divine uh, atrophied. It's simply, you know, we and many people who say, well, that I just can't do that. It doesn't work. I think it takes a discipline. And I think this is where our science should be focusing its attention, uh, not in how to merge the human being with the machine, but how to understand, to, to exercise this uh, organ of soul so that we can communicate. Uh, it's, we're communicate with the, with the quantum field. I mean, scientists say the same thing about the quantum field as mystics say, and they say more, of course, the mystics about the moonness imaginalis. So I think I wish our focus were here because we all have that potential and that is how we connect to our larger being, the larger aspect of divinity within us. You earlier referenced Jean-Baptiste Vico, who was uh, an Enlightenment philosopher himself, an 18th century philosopher who uh, really pointed toward the crucial value of symbolic language at the same time as the culture itself seemed to be pointing in the other direction. Oh, it was so true. The Enlightenment philosophers in France went entirely in a different direction, and Vico was ignored. And it wasn't until there was another Renaissance, and that was Goethe and the German Romantics, who started reading Vico. Uh, Vico was 
he was absolutely crucial to our full development. When I did my dissertation at the university, I used him as the theorist that would allow me to work with prehistory, the pre-symbolic images, as well as the present, because he was the only one who, the theorist who had honored them in that way. There were ones who followed him, like Ernst Kassirer is also very uh, good at that. But as Beagle said so clearly, if we cut off the right brain or the pre-reflective symbolic function, if we cut that off, then we have to censor it. So everything that the Enlightenment philosophers said was inferior has to be censored. And so we don't know who we are after a while. And that meant censoring the mundus imaginalis. After all, it didn't exist. Spirit didn't exist. Pure intellect didn't exist. And so we became extraordinarily pathological. And when we don't do business with the monus imaginalis, we cut that off and sever ourselves from it and have only the rational brain, then we, we don't really know how to even think certain thoughts. And we don't usually think of them with compassion. So we, all of that energy comes shoved, is shoved back into us and we become egotistical or superior or uh, we need, we have the need to dominate. We see that so much in our culture that just as Jesus said in the Nakamadi text, if you bring forth what is within you, and I see that as connecting with the archetypal world, if you bring forth what is within you, it will save you. But if you do not bring forth what is within you, it will destroy you. And I think that that's what we're seeing in Western culture. We've been convinced that there's nothing other than consciousness and matter. And so how do we have meaning in the world if we can't connect to our larger selves? Then the ego is not reflecting that deep meaning within us. We have to get at anything in the outer world to make us feel that we're grand and big and important. And that's a very sad state of affairs. Uh, and then, of course, there's the need, if we're superior, after all, we should dominate. Those are the the ways in which it destroys us. So it's so important for us, and I think it is an awakening, people are awakening to this, that yes, uh, Corbin says it beautifully. He says, the organ of soul allows us to perceive precisely the subtle world. And we haven't believed that. We think if we get a glimpse of anything, it's great breakthrough, and I guess it is. But Corbin is telling us that these Sufis had developed that ability. They had developed the potential of the organ of soul to see precisely. He also said that everything that is in the material world is encoded and recorded in the material world. So when the physical is no longer here, it is in the subtle world. So we have really uh, cut ourselves short. And I think we're coming back to it of recognizing how incredible it is that it took millions of years for nature to achieve a symbolic ability in the human species so that we could co-create with spirit. And we have said it doesn't exist <laughs> so remembering that is going to be our salvation. You often, in your writing, contrast what you call conceptual language with symbolic language. And now, I think it's interesting, you and I are having this conversation uh, using conceptual language, and yet we are pointing to something beyond conceptual language. One of the things you state is that you cannot reduce one to the other. Both of these ways of creating meaning are independent of each other. They are. And Vico said it so beautifully. He said that the symbol and the idea should always be an integral and dynamic continuum of movement one between the other. One should never replace the other. But again, it's that integral dynamic continuum we are constantly permeating, moving back and forth, integrating and uh, merging these two languages. Even though if we stop to think, we know this is symbolic, this is rational, this is conceptual. But it's just like these three spheres uh, that our ancestors talked about. 
it should be perpetual uh, movement into these worlds and in an integrated way so that, yes, when we speak, we're talking about symbols. We're also uh, speaking in conceptual ways with each other. We are allowing that movement to go back and forth. But, oh, how I've known so many people who the symbol was just fantasy. You know, in our previous interview, we talked about cycles in uh, human history where there are periods of great esoteric flowering, where uh, on a cultural scale, people are in touch with this essence of soul and, and the language of, of the soul. And then it seems as if the institutions, the very institutions such as the church that are uh, created for the purpose of fostering this understanding uh, become power-hungry, more interested in their own self-preservation than in their, their original uh, purpose. And a as a result of that, they, they begin to not only deviate from the, the core truths that you've been pointing toward, but they actually actively uh, find ways of discouraging it. Yes, absolutely. And not only discouraging it, but destroying it and actually murdering uh, many, many people who uh, who wanted to work in that way and teach in that way and destroyed whole cultures. Uh, it's Yes, it's one of the sad things of our history in the West is that institutions that started out uh, with a living archetypal foundation uh, inverted that foundation uh, into a power structure that we could not go inward, but we must believe what the um, doctrine tells us to believe. This is this has been one of the most destructive movements throughout Western history. It even uh, would not allow scientists to go inward <laughs> and study consciousness. And that's why we ended up with a worldview that there's only matter and we're nothing but a fluke. It's the worst kind of thinking that we could ever have. But I think that because we are so much more, there's that human longing and intuition that after a certain period of being repressed and living only in the world of power, that we long for that and it comes back. As Jung says, it will always come back in a dream. That's where it first appears. And then people began to uh, be ignited by that. Uh, I think of in the high middle ages when uh, the myth of Parsifal, uh, the search for the grail, yes, that was the search for this very kind of soul function and activity. And it just became a story that ignited all Europe uh, in, in the early, in the high Middle Ages, and it came back. But once the church began to realize just what was going on, it was over. Uh, no more stories were written like that. So, yes, each time this is, this longing and this organ of soul intuitively leads us to our higher selves, it usually gets destroyed by organizations and uh, political, uh, you know, the state did then and it does now. Uh, one way to destroy us is to make us fearful. When we're fearful, that energy cannot flow in that wonderful continuum between the symbol and the idea. It goes right back to the, uh, to the very, the, the, reaction brain, the one that must immediately react. And if the energy goes back that way, it cannot flow through the symbolic conceptual brain into the heart. So that's a way of having power over people too. And it comes again and again and again. And and I see in our time, uh, we see that uh, sometimes out of fear, the politicians themselves want us to be fearful rather than to look at the situation and find solutions and allow ourselves to, to communicate with these other dimensions of reality. Uh, and here, at the same time that that seems to be intensifying, also it's a renaissance of our knowledge of who we really are and of these other worlds. It's really a crossroads <laughs> kind of right now. Well, one of the uh, other points that uh, has come through our previous conversations is is that this language of the soul, this symbolic language, is one that uh, enables us embodied living people to communicate with those who have departed. Yes, I I think so. Um, 
uh, Kim and I have, uh, through Comlock, we have uh, a group that meets once a month. And they are people who have uh, uh, experienced a death of someone they love. And they come together where they can talk freely and not uh, be judged in how they have received communications from uh, those who have died and who are in the other world. And of course, for every family foundation that we work with uh, has uh, actually its entire purpose is to help people to find ways of communicating with those who have died uh, because they themselves, those who founded it, did experience uh, through the death of their child. They did experience so many forms of communication and some symbolic, some very conceptual. Uh, so I think that there are probably many ways that we can communicate with the subtle world and with those who have passed, who are in the subtle world. I think it's our heritage to do that. And we have lost those ways. I think that we can begin to discover either the old ways or new ways, new ways of communicating with those who have died. Otherwise, there's too much pain. There's such incredible pain in the loss of someone we love and we live our lives they're so integrated with someone we love and then that person's gone well why shouldn't we be able to communicate and we can i just think we need to now focus on ways in which we can do that more easily i know that many investigators of this area talk about signs that occur, that typically when somebody is deceased, the first efforts at communication will be symbolic. Things will appear that trigger memories, for example, that their way of communicating is much more soulful, typically, than it is uh, logical and conceptual. Yes, yes. I think that, uh, that we, I felt after the deaths of my family that the first two years were very clear. I think there was an effort on their part uh, to help me to know that they were alive and, and it was very clear. As Corbin says, precise, precise communication. But then I realized I had to develop a subtlety that I hadn't had uh, to being aware of signs and feelings and events that were subtle. And I had not been that conscious before, but I realized that if I wanted communication with them now, that I would have to develop a more subtle way of relating uh, to the world. And you've used the word feeling a few times. It seems as if in, in our culture, we emphasize the intellect and we emphasize the world of sensations, but intuition and feeling sometimes get downplayed. And the, the realm of feelings seems much closer to the symbolic language of the soul. It is absolutely. Uh, that's another thing in Western culture that we just give us the facts. We don't care how you feel. <laughs> but now we know uh, that feeling is a way of knowing. And if we are if we are receiving energy from the subtle mundus imaginalis, it will very often come, of course, through the, the organ of soul, which is the heart, and we will feel it. And sometimes these deep intuitions, and some people have incredible intuition, that comes through the organ of soul, the heart, from the subtle world. And our ancestors honored it and valued it. We have criticized it. Well, that's just women's intuition, obviously, meaning it's totally irrelevant. But it does come from this mundus imaginalis through the organ of heart where we feel and we intuit. And so it's really wise to allow ourselves to feel, to experience that intuition and see what it might be trying to communicate to us. But our whole culture has to learn uh, a new way of perceiving. One of the things uh, that I found really fascinating in your book was the idea that other animals seem to have uh, an ability to um, resonate with this uh, language of the soul. They are, they have rituals. They have 
things that they they do which make no sense at all to us in terms of you know searching for food and and so on but if we study their behavior they they are responding at a soulful level yes that was very interesting to me to see that uh how animals do that very thing uh i think that for instance, I, I mentioned in the book that through mammals, probably all mammals have the ability to dream. And uh, that was quite a, a surprise to me. But that means that this intention in nature then seems to have worked very hard through the mammals to help us to develop uh, this uh, intuition, this feeling, this uh, uh, organ of soul. But yes, I think if we really are in tune with animals, and many people have become in tune with them by having cats and dogs, and they begin to realize they're so much smarter and intuitive and and feeling. They seem to sense uh, what's going on with us. That if we could, if we could look at the whole animal world and the world of nature more in the way of our ancestors, we would begin to see that truly the divine is in all things. And soul uh, appears to be everywhere. It just works at different levels of consciousness. And I, I know that my farmers, I've heard farmers talk about, uh, their cattle, uh, what they, how they felt when they took the calves away. They, they seem to know that and, and know that they were suffering. They still did it. <laughs> but, uh, I, I think just because they were with them, they began to have relationships with them. I'm under the impression, too, that access to this level of understanding is easier for women. You know, growing up as a male, when you reach the age of uh, sometimes six or seven, you're taught big boys don't cry. Boys at a young age are, are basically taught to suppress their feelings. I, I would hope that that would be changing. I don't know. Uh, that's, yes, that's a terrible thing, isn't it? Uh, I, I wonder, I, I grew up with a brother, he and I were very close, and I saw his troubles as he was older, difficulties that I didn't have, and it made me try to think how different was his life as a boy growing up than mine was. I, I don't know what pressures my father might have put on him that he didn't on me. Um, I, I think that's been a great difficulty in our culture and one that I hope is changing. I mean, I suspect, uh, amongst other things, it's related to the fact that women live longer. I think that when men s suppress their feelings, it's, it's actually bad for their health. Oh, I think so, too. Oh, I absolutely think so. And I think being, uh, <laughs> growing up as a woman, I can speak from my own experience in which not so much was expected, I would say, is I wonder if I were, had been a boy, what, what would my parents have expected of me? But I realized that anything I did was gravy, <laughs> you know? So I didn't have that pressure of, uh, getting a big job and making a lot of money. And of course, my parents didn't think that way anyway. But I think that pressure uh, is probably on women now if we allow it. But um, I think we need to, to learn a whole new way of being in the world, of being able to, being able simply to be present in the moment without always planning ahead or trying to achieve. And I think that burden has been on men, as you say, much more than on women, although many, many young women feel it. Um, but it, it does take, it takes the life uh, essence away from us. Well, let me ask you about poetry. I think we started by saying that the language of the soul is is poetic. Could, could you elaborate on that a little? I found it very interesting when I, as well as my husband, had so many visions uh, after our son died. And there would be a point at which the voice, and I always found there was a voice speaking to me in these visions, the voice would become incredibly poetic. And it would sing. 
Uh, now, this is also true with the use of sacred plants. Uh, sacred plants can, uh, many people object to them today who don't really know that that objection comes from power structures who don't want us to go inward. And they have to be used carefully. But I knew as a mythologist, uh, studying and teaching mythologies of, of groups of people who did use sacred medicine, that I would have to use them if I wanted to know what I was talking about. And there are points in, in that, in the depth of those experiences in which that voice of soul sings. And it's always poetic. And the music is so haunting and you find yourself doing the singing. And it's, it, I've always thought that's what Vico meant, that there's a point in the depth of soul that it can only express itself in music and poetry. Um, and it, that reminds me of the Celtic bards. We are told that they spent a lifetime uh, studying the poetry and the stories and the histories of their tribes. And they also spent their life in going into these altered states of consciousness and I know in those altered states, they had to hear the music and the poetry of that soul that is within us. I would never have known that had I not experienced that through the use of sacred medicine, that soul at a certain point speaks only in poetry and music. So when these bards would perform for people, they danced, they sang, and they chanted poetry. And because they themselves could go into an altered state, they were able to ignite that state in their listeners, in the audience. And that was called baraka, that one ignited it because they were in that state and used the music and the poetry, that that very music and poetry would ignite others in the audience to go into that state. I like to think that that's what we should be aiming for as a culture, to be able to do this uh, for ourselves and for others, that we could ignite that. And it does seem to be deeply rooted in that deep state of consciousness that expresses itself in music and poetry and dance. Well, I know certainly the Hasidic Jewish people had this tradition of dancing and singing in spite of the many persecutions uh, that they had to endure. And I have no doubt that that ability to find joy in the midst of terrible tragedy even is one of the reasons that uh, the Jewish tradition has survived for all, all these millennia. Absolutely. That if no matter what we have to endure, if we can find a mode of being that allows us to laugh again and to feel joy again, that we will survive. And, uh, I, if I could just say this about, uh, the first temple tradition, we've talked before about how the Deuteronomist, uh, actually threw out the, all of the images of soul and uh, inverted the myths into making us guilty and unworthy. But I know, Jeff, you know, you remember this, how God in the old, in, uh, in Genesis said that you cannot make any image of God, nothing, no image of anything that flies in the air or walks on the earth or swims in the ocean. Well, they knew, they knew that if they could not make an image that they would suffer and would not be able to connect to the mundus imaginalis and they could have power over them. So any time that we are able to take that back, that which belongs to us and allow it to, to work in us and dance. I, I, yes, I think of those Jews who danced those dances and, and chanted is that when we dance, something happens to us. Somehow the things we were worried about don't seem to be as serious. And the singing, uh, I found this in my own experience when I was in Hungary, that in the villages, uh, the people, I mean, they'd gone through a lot and occupation and control and all of those things, but they still would get together and they would dance and dance and sing. And I found that I, I felt different. I felt so good. The joy came through those archetypal movements and sounds.
Another theme that gets expressed in your work, Betty, is the connection with the goddess. And I'm under the impression that so much of these traditions of authoritarian control are associated with with the notion of a male deity, whereas the symbolic flowing uh, dancing and uh, myth myth making seems to be more associated with the uh, goddess traditions. It's interesting, isn't it? That it is. And uh, the goddess, well, it's the mother image, but it also her very body uh, is life creating and life nurturing. And the thought was that she takes that body when it dies back into the earth, her body. But in in every culture that I know about, the goddess was the symbol of soul symbol of soul, of feeling, of intuition, of all that we've been talking about in the Mundus Imaginalis. And that would be the the source. We would say, okay, it is the Mundus. She is the Mundus Imaginalis. And we are all the masculine, you might say, in time and space. And how do we relate to the Mundus Imaginalis? How do we relate to the organ of soul? Uh, we, as masculine, come into being and go out. We are that symbol for coming into life and going back out of life. And she is that eternal uh, source, the mundus imaginalis, which is pure spirit. Uh, but we're, we have both. <laughs> we are obviously both. We are mundus imaginalis, and we are in our physical form coming in and going out. And she is the eternal symbol. Well, Betty Kovacs, once again, this has been a rich, soulful discussion. I want to thank you so much for being with me, and I hope that uh, we continue our conversations because I can tell you I'm getting lots of positive feedback from our viewers who would uh, love to hear more from you. Oh, I'm very moved by that, Jeff, and I would love to come back. I would love to talk with you again, and I really thank you for that. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.